This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This is David Rutledge with you once again. Great to have your company and we're talking about moral creativity this week. It's one thing to be a good person, an intrinsically virtuous person, but in a world made up of moral shades of grey, your intrinsic goodness might only get you so far when you're confronted with a situation that demands moral creativity. So, what do we mean by moral creativity? Well, my guest this week has a very interesting answer to this question, and it's an answer that aims to solve a centuries-old philosophical puzzle. Her name is Mandy Astola. She's a lecturer in the Department of Ethics and Philosophy at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, and she's been a recent visitor to Australia. For Mandy Astola, moral creativity begins with Aristotle and virtue ethics. I think that every single moral theory comes down to a circle at some point. So in the end, there's always going to be some point at which you say, if you keep asking the question, why is that good? Why is that good? Why is that good? At some point you sort of hit bedrock and then you just have to say, well, yeah, that thing is good because it has intrinsic value. So in utilitarianism, it's like you keep asking, why is it good to take this action? It's good because it causes the most pleasure. Um, why is pleasure good? Well, it just is. So you always hit a kind of justification bedrock. And the idea with virtue ethics is that you hit that bedrock a little faster because you're using thicker concepts. But that, of course, also has various advantages because if you take something like utilitarianism, you end up sort of reducing all of moral life down to something very flat and very simple like pleasure. Whereas in virtue ethics, you don't get that. And that's actually one of the things that attracts me to virtue ethics. Well, according to Aristotle, we acquire virtue through repetition, right? And we we attain virtuous habits in the end. But does that mean that we ideally get to the point where we act virtuously without thinking on on a kind of uh, ethical autopilot? Or, Or is there always deliberation and judgment involved? So the idea with virtues is that indeed they're very habitual and if you just keep repeating them over and over again at some point you will acquire a virtue and at the moment that you actually have a virtue it should be very effortless for you to practice it so at that point it's become really a part of your character and you actually don't really need the judgment and the deliberation there so in a sense that like let's say you're walking down the street uh, somebody's walking towards you they smile at you you smile back This is something that doesn't take any effort, right? And, you know, in the same way, if somebody falls down in front of you on the street and hits their head really badly and starts bleeding, then you probably, or at least for many people, they don't need to think twice about what they're going to do. Like the, the immediate first reaction will be like, okay, I need to go to this person and check that they're okay. And if that is your first response then probably you have cultivated at least some kind of virtuous character trait that makes sure that that's your first reaction. And and are the virtues universally agreed upon? Is there there sort of a list of unequivocally virtuous qualities? Or or is it possible that the same quality can be seen as a vice and a virtue, depending on the situation or depending on one's perspective? Yeah, so actually there are many um, lists of virtues and vices, And I think every philosopher probably has their own. Um, Aristotle had this idea that the virtue is always in the right middle. And then on either sides of it, you've got two extreme opposites. So for example, for courage, you've got rashness on one side. 
and cowardice on the other side. And, you know, to, if you can bring yourself to the right middle, then you're virtuous. I always think of something like extreme candor, you know, that, that sort of where somebody says, do you like my new haircut? And I say, no, I think it makes you look ridiculous. You know, I, I'm being scrupulously honest, but am I, I don't think I'm being virtuous necessarily. Yeah, right. So that's an interesting question. Can certain vices be virtues in some situations? So I think actually that in some cases, just like Aristotle says that within yourself, you should be trying to bring yourself down to the right middle. So he has this metaphor of when you've got a stick that's bent, then you try to bend it the other way to get it straight. So let's say that you've got a tendency to be like brutally honest, then it might be good when you're interacting with people to actually try your best to be really, really polite and maybe a bit insincere even, because then you will bring yourself to the right middle. But of course, in some cases, brutal honesty is needed, right? So what is honesty to, you know, a stranger on the street requires different things than being honest to like your partner or your parents or something like that, people with whom you have a closer relationship. So how exactly you exercise a certain virtue will depend on the situation. And in order to know how exactly, you know, what the right amount of generosity or honesty is for which person, you need practical wisdom. And practical wisdom or phronesis is like a meta virtue. So it's a super virtue that controls all other virtues. You've mentioned phronesis there, this this sort of meta virtue, which is often translated as practical wisdom. Um, why do we need a meta virtue in the first place? I mean, a, a virtue is a good thing. It has its own moral integrity, if you like. Why does Aristotle posit the need for a sort of meta virtue, an overarching virtue like phronesis? Yeah. So I think the idea there is that when you have the virtues, you have a certain habitual behavior that drives you to do certain things. So if you're a generous person, you're going to be naturally inclined to, you know, whatever, give to people that need something, right? Or share your food, whatever. And you're going to do that very easily and habitually without thinking about it. But of course, in many cases in life, you cannot rely on habitual behavior. Um, you need to actually think about what you're doing because sometimes we come across difficult moral problems. And in those cases, it's not always obvious, like, oh, well, I'll do the generous thing or I'll do the courageous thing. I'll do what comes naturally. Um, life is very complicated. So what you need is a kind of meta virtue that tells you what to do in cases where you can't rely on habitual behavior. And at the same time, of course, exercising a virtue is going to vary per situation. So if you're being generous to a stranger, the same amount of generosity that you give to a stranger, that would be completely inappropriate if that was the amount of generosity you're giving your own child, right? So there's differences in different situations with regard to what generosity means. And for that reason, you also need phrenesis. Right. So it's a virtue of, of sort of judgment or, or discernment. And there is another kind of wisdom that Aristotle posits, which he calls Sophia. And he sees Sophia as going hand in hand with phronesis. What's the relationship there? Yeah. So Sophia is a different type of wisdom. So Sophia is kind of like a theoretical type of wisdom, almost like being, you know, being rational, being able to deliberate about things like mathematics or epistemology or philosophy. But of course, phronesis 
is specifically the type of wisdom that is particular to the domain of moral action or just to the domain of action. So what you do, how you live your life with other people, you know, how you approach somebody, you know, if you're at work, maybe things like what people you hire or, you know, these are practical questions rather than theoretical questions. And these are questions where you need phronesis and a person that excels at this is like a phronimos. Um, so a very practically wise person. And, you know, a typical example, like sometimes you see like a very intelligent professor just make a completely inappropriate joke or something like that. And you think like, well, you're, you have a lot of Sophia, but you're clearly lacking phronesis. Your take on phronesis is that it should be understood as moral creativity, which is a very interesting way of approaching this problem of, of defining phronesis. Before we unpack that, is creativity or the, the accommodation of creativity something that you see as lacking in moral philosophy? That's a good question. So I see a lot of very creative people doing very creative stuff. But at the same time, I think there are certain tendencies in moral philosophy that sort of abstract away from real life and abstract away from how much we actually need creativity in moral thinking. And I have to say, I'm, I'm really shocked at how little attention there has been to the role of creativity in moral life among philosophers. So philosophers really like to express things in terms of dilemmas. Like you have to do either X or Y. These are your two options. What do you do? And of course, that can be useful sometimes because it helps us to compare two separate options and think about each of their merits and how they compare. But I think in real life, there are very few actual dilemmas. Like when's the last time that you have had an actual dilemma with only two possible options? I mean, that's almost never, right? Like there's always, there's a potentially infinite number of things you can do. So for example, in the, in the trolley dilemma, are readers familiar with the trolley dilemma? I think so. Yeah. It comes up again and again and again. And it's an interesting one because it's the classic binary dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So in the trolley dilemma, you've got these two options. Uh, either you pull the lever or you do nothing. And in philosophy, that's how we often express it. But of course, if that actually happened to you, if you were actually there on that hill looking at the trolley rolling down, then there's a million other things you could do that would probably be way better than either of those two options. So for example, you might try shouting and seeing if you can get all the people to get off the rails so nobody gets hurt. Or you might move the lever towards the middle so that the rails don't interlock and that the trolley crashes at the junction instead of killing the people. And like, these are just two possible options. There's infinite more. And I think coming up with all of those options, that requires creativity. And also thinking about the implications of all these options for action that you're deliberating about also requires creativity and imagination. And I think that this is something that's really underappreciated in philosophy. Yeah, you mentioned imagination there. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you, how moral creativity is connected to moral imagination. Are they the same thing or are they, are they different, but you need moral imagination in order to be morally creative? What's the relationship there? Yeah, so actually I just said that there's been almost no attention to creativity in philosophy, but that's not entirely true because there are philosophers that have looked at imaginations or moral imagination and done some very interesting work there. 
Um, so, for example, Martha Nussbaum has a couple of books that are really about fiction and the role of fiction and imaginative thinking in our moral life and how actually this skill of being able to, you know, write like a, like a novelist, imagine how people that are living very different lives than you yourself, how they are living their life and what they are thinking, what they're feeling, what problems they're facing. If you have that kind of sensitivity, then this is going to help you with your moral life as well. And actually, I've got a nice quote from Martha Nussbaum here from, uh, from the book Love's Knowledge. So she says, in the activity of literary imagining, we are led to imagine and describe with greater precision, focusing our attention on each word, feeling each event more keenly. Whereas much of actual life goes by without that heightened awareness and is thus, in a certain sense, not fully or thoroughly lived. And I think that this sort of echoes this Aristotelian idea of catharsis, that you can see works of fiction and you can see sort of tragedies or stories unfolding in fiction and you can sort of live them through the experience that you're having with that piece of fiction. And that this helps you to understand moral life and makes you a better person. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Mandy Astola from Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. We're talking about moral creativity and how it can work to make our moral responses to the world more flexible. So when you say that you want to define phrenesis as moral creativity, what model or, or what, what understanding of creativity are you working with? What, what do you mean exactly when you, when you talk about creativity? So creativity can be conceptualized in different ways. And one way to look at it is to look at it as an ability. Another way to look at it is to see it as a virtue. And a virtue is essentially like an ability plus. So you're able to do something but you're also kind of motivated in the right way and it's a steady part of your character and so on, right? So creativity as an ability, uh, it's the ability to come up with new ideas that are surprising yet intelligible and also valuable in some way. So there's a famous creativity researcher, Margaret Bowden, and she argues that there are kind of three types of creativity. One is combinational creativity, one is exploratory creativity, and another one is transformational creativity. And each one of these is different. So in combinational creativity, there's this idea of producing new ideas by combining surprising things. So kind of a simple example of that would be, I take a spoon and I take a fork and I combine those and I make a spork. You know, taking ideas from one context and importing it into another. That's combinational creativity. And then there's exploratory creativity. And this is the kind of creativity where you are, where you have a certain domain or a certain practice that you're engaging with, and you're sort of exploring the boundaries of that domain. So for example, if you're a dancer, then you might just be moving around, just like moving your body and seeing what movements are available to you in that space of dancing. 
And then transformational creativity is when you, you're not just moving around within the domain, but you actually do something that transforms the domain itself. And an example of exploratory creativity would then be a spork that you design very beautifully with elaborate lines. And, you know, you're kind of exploring the space of what it is to make a spork. And then with transformational creativity, if we carry on with the spork example, you could say that perhaps if you make a silver spork and you engrave your initials on it and intend to pass it down to your children, that then you might be kind of transforming the idea of what a spork is, because generally that's something made of plastic or something, you know, a throwaway material that you take with you when you're traveling or whatever, but to make it into something very fancy, uh, you know, that you pass down, that might be a sort of transformation of what it means for something to be a spork. Well, that's a great rundown on what we mean when we're talking about creativity here. How might this all translate to the moral domain if we exercise moral creativity in the way that demonstrates these three sort of attributes? If we think about combinational creativity, you might think of taking a certain type of moral reasoning from one domain and importing it into another domain. Let's say uh, my partner is texting someone all day. I fear that they find someone else more interesting than me. And I might be inclined to get angry at them or something like that. But then I might think, hold on, if it were my friend or, you know, my brother texting all day, I wouldn't draw that conclusion. So maybe I shouldn't draw that conclusion now. Maybe I shouldn't get angry at them. So then I'm taking moral reasoning from the realm of friendship and I'm importing that into the realm of my romantic relationship. So that's combinational moral creativity, yeah. Yeah, and then if we think about exploratory creativity, let's take the same example again. I might think, well, maybe I should tell my partner how I feel about this. And if I've decided I'm going to tell them, then in my head I am exploring that space of having that conversation with my partner. So then I might think like, well, should I bring this in a funny way? Should I try and make a joke out of it? Or should I just be very emotional and very vulnerable? You know, in what way exactly am I going to approach him? And what impacts is this going to have? This is exploratory creativity in the moral domain. And then there's transformational creativity. And I mean, of course, transformational creativity is something that's really reserved for creative geniuses. So I find it a little bit difficult to come up with examples of this. But here's my best shot. Let's say, you know, with the same example of my partner texting somebody else, what if I just say to myself, well, maybe he does find someone else more interesting than me at this moment. You know, maybe that's just how it is, but perhaps I don't need to fear this. Maybe I can reconfigure my relationship in such a way that this doesn't have to be, you know, detrimental, right? So that would be an example of creativity where you use moral reasoning to sort of transform the context in which you are reasoning. Okay, so I understand all that, but I'm still wondering if what we're describing here is an ethically neutral or maybe ambiguous phenomenon. If we look at moral creativity as a virtue, I mean, because I, I can imagine that you could be morally creative in a way that caused harm to people, but what, what is it that makes a morally creative person a virtuous person? 
Yeah, right. So if we think about moral creativity really as a virtue, then of course it needs to be intrinsically good. It needs to be a, just in itself a valuable character trait. So I've got a definition of moral creativity um, that I really like, and it goes something like this. Um, moral creativity is the ability to come up with novel and worthwhile options for action and considerations. In cases where you've acquired a certain degree of mastery and you know what you're doing when you're doing that. And in doing so, you're motivated by moral values for reasons that hook up with those values in the right kinds of ways. Right? So this definition has three parts. Um, the first part is that you are coming up with novel and worthwhile options for action or considerations. And this is kind of the target of the virtue. So you are actually producing valuable outcomes. And then the second part of this definition is that you've acquired a certain degree of mastery and you know what you're doing when you're coming up with those creative things. So it cannot be the case that you accidentally settle on a really creative option for action and then that that's creative. Um, it isn't because that's just lucky. It should be something that you sort of skillfully come up with um, in the same way that if a person tried to write on a piece of paper, but they had a muscle spasm while they were doing it and happened to produce like a beautiful work of art. Well, we wouldn't call that creative because they didn't produce that intentionally. So in the same way, if you get morally lucky, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily morally creative. And so the last part of the definition is like a motivational part. So I find it very important that if you're a morally creative person, that you're also motivated by moral values for reasons that hook up with those values in the right kinds of ways. And what this means is that you are making morally creative decisions because you are motivated by things like justice or friendship or love or, you know, things that are inherent to the moral domain. You shouldn't be doing creative moral decisions because you're going to be rewarded for it or something like that. And I think actually this having this kind of intrinsic motivation for the moral domain, that's also what's going to keep you doing it. So that's what's going to make sure that this is a, a, a steady part of your character rather than just a fluke. So what about some real world examples there? Can you think of people who bear out these qualities that you're talking about, who are morally creative people in, in the real world? I think that you have positive and negative exemplars of this kind of um, moral creativity. I think that people that exemplify the opposite of that virtue, so morally uncreative people, also make it sort of very salient why moral creativity is important. So think about like petty bureaucrats, right? Who just think, well, there's this option and there's that option and that's all there is. That's the kind of thing that requires a lack of moral creativity. Examples of morally creative decisions. Well, I mean, I have a couple, like, for example, I've got a friend who recently told me um, that because him and his girlfriend um, really want to stay together, one of them wants kids, the other doesn't. And of course, the obvious two options would be either you stay together and you compromise some happiness or you break up. But what he was telling me is like, well, we're going to look into co-parenting. So we're going to see if it's possible for one of the people to co-parent with another person or, you know, raise a child with another couple or something like that. 
so that one of them can have kids, the other doesn't have to, and they can still stay together. And that's something that I thought, well, that, that's morally creative. And I have another friend who was also talking about hiring people at work. And he said that you can either hire person A or person B. And those were kind of the two options. But then, of course, you can also say, well, maybe it's possible that we hire all of them. Let's see if we can make this possible. So kind of looking for a third option. Um, and these are just really ordinary examples of moral creativity. Of course, you can imagine a person who acts very, very predictably or acts very, very well, but not very creatively, you know, like a moral saint or something like that. But I think a person like that will really struggle in difficult moral problems where you have a potentially infinite number of options for action. By a moral saint, you mean somebody who, who is just intrinsically virtuous, you know, but, but not necessarily creative. Yeah, right. So a person who possesses the virtues, you know, possesses virtues like generosity, you know, or compassion or kindness, but doesn't have enough, you know, moral creativity to sort of control those virtues. Well, I just want to ask finally, Mandy, if you think that creative moral reasoning is always good, or are there ways in which we can use creative moral reasoning to come up with conclusions or, or effects that are actually far from virtuous? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because, I mean, what immediately comes to mind is that a lot of people use moral argumentation in a very creative way to come up with really messed up conclusions. And I think you see this kind of thing all the time. Like, <laughs> just an example, I saw recently a... Um, a gentleman on the internet posting about if men aren't entitled to sex with women, well, then women aren't entitled to respect from men. Like, that's an interesting kind of moral argument to make, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of creative. Like you say, I'm not entitled to sex, so why should you be entitled to something from me? You know, sex and respect are kind of maybe equivalent in some sense. Maybe they're kind of transactional. Maybe you can exchange these things. Um, and I think that's a, in a sense, that's a very creative use of moral argumentation. But in this case, you might say like, yeah, well, that doesn't seem right. That, that, that doesn't seem good. But I think in a case like this, I don't think that this is really moral creativity. I would say it is a kind of creativity but it's more like creativity in a different domain. And I think the domain here is something like bullshitting or, you know, maybe a literary domain even. Maybe you're just, you know, thinking around, but it's not, it's, it's not really moral action that we're concerned with here. And I also think that in many cases where people use moral arguments creatively to come to really messed up conclusions, we often detect insincerity. So, we detect that this person isn't really motivated by moral values, you know, for reasons that hook up with them in the right way, but rather they're motivated by something like, well, I'm sexually frustrated and I want to take it out on someone, or maybe I, I want money or I want power or something like that. So in those cases, we don't have a morally creative person because they're not motivated in the right way. Mandy Astola. She's a lecturer in the Department of Ethics and Philosophy at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. And you can find out more info on the Philosopher's Zone website. And of course, you can also follow the Philosopher's Zone via the ABC Listen app. And this is David Rutledge. It's been great to have your company today, and I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now.